Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. This is a podcast show where we invite scholars, policymakers, and business executives to share their unique insights on policy-related issues in our world today. I'm Princeton sophomore Tiger Gao. Our guest today is Mr. Jeffrey Schaefer. He is the former vice chairman of Citigroup and former U.S. Undersecretary of Treasury for International Affairs. He's currently the founder of J.R. Schaefer Insight, where he provides strategic advice for governments and businesses. Uh, I got to know Mr. Schaefer just a few months ago when I was presenting Policy Punchline to the external advisory board of our uh, Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance, and he was in fact one of the board members, so I'm really excited to finally get to interview him. Thank you so much for kindly supporting our project and for joining me in the studio today. Well, it's good to be here. Uh, Mr. Schaefer, you have uh, such a wide range of experiences, uh, private sector, public sector, international organizations. Uh, but why don't we start from the very beginning? You went to Princeton for undergrad. Right. And then you went to Vietnam before doing an economics PhD in Yale. So we'd love to hear your experience back then. Well, it was interesting. When I was a student at Princeton, uh, I think back now, I studied economics, but I really learned my economics in graduate school. And I took two things away from Princeton that are among the most important things in my life, and they weren't the economics. Uh, one was, and this is a reflection of the distribution requirements you have here, in a European literature course, I read Camus' uh, La Peste. And it's a book about a doctor during a, uh, uh, the plague hitting Iran in uh, North Africa, and he knows He's really not going to be able to do much about it. And he knows how these play themselves out and what the casualty rates are. But he gets up every day and he goes about his job. And that idea about that's how one should pursue one's career has, has stuck with me and has been a very important influence. And the other one was on the senior day, the day before graduation, the president at the time, uh, Robert Goheen, got up and talked to the students. And he said, you know, we have spent four years teaching you to think through things from beginning to end and through all the aspects of it and everything. I want to tell you, when you get out there in the world, there are going to be many times when you're going to have to make a decision and you just don't have all the information yet. And you've got to have the courage to go ahead anyway. And boy, when I got into working in a number of policy problems <laughs> uh, and financial crises, you realize you just have to be able to go with what you know and uh, hope you, you get it right. How was going to Vietnam? That was that must have been a very, very different experience. It was a very different experience, and I really don't understand to this day exactly why I did it. I, I could have avoided it, like m m most people did of my generation who went to schools like Princeton. Um, but I felt I'd been in school as long as I could take, and I needed to do something else. And the, the Army, I had been in the ROTC program, was, was the alternative. Um, and I think there was a part of the adventure of it, the wanting to do something different that did, did attract me. And I did take away from that, young in my life, taking on tremendous life and death responsibilities uh, and having to make decisions under uncertainty and so forth, that I think did prepare a good base for things I've done later. Uh, and then it was Yale. Yes. And, and I think you mentioned to me how uh, you didn't immediately finish the PhD. No, I, well, I went through my uh, my my four years, and uh, uh, academically, I did very well. But I was slow at getting my dissertation finished. Uh, I came to understand later that 
temperamentally, I like things that uh, hit fast and are over and move on like policy does. And the kind of sitting there every day grinding away on one problem wasn't something I was great at. Uh, I needed to get a job. I went out and got a job in the Federal Reserve. And uh, my boss there, after a couple of years, I'd done a research project, and he said, you know, you ought to take this back to Yale and turn it into a dissertation. And so I did, and so I did finally finish. Um, but maybe that was after the point at which it really wasn't critical for my career. I was just doing it for pride. Uh, so how was the Fed experience? Because th- th- afterwards you went to uh, hold a series of high-level positions at the OECD. So th- why not stay in, in, in the Fed or the, the U.S. system? I think I always liked change. And I was at the Fed for nine years, and I liked it immensely. I did take a leave of absence once to go to Carnegie Mellon and and teach and decided, well, I had taken the right fork in the road and going to the policy area and not the academic area where I would have had to grind away on the same questions day after day. Uh, And uh, so I did, first move I made was from the Fed in Washington to the Fed in New York. And that was uh, not that different, or it was it was somewhat different. It was not a great move. Um, and after a few years, the opportunity came to join the OECD in Paris. And uh, my wife and two daughters said, "Yes, that'd be a great adventure." <laughs> and we went with the original intention of spending a year, year and a half on a leave of absence. And then I liked it. My family liked it, and I had the opportunity to turn it into uh, a. Uh, uh, long-term job, uh, and I did, and fully expected to spend the rest of my career there. I had kind of looked at Wall Street economist jobs and had burned my bridges by not taking one job and uh, (laughs) kind of getting far away um, and expected that I would spend the rest of my life in Paris and could have been a lot worse. But when Bill Clinton was elected president, my friends like Larry Summers were going to Washington, and I got invited to join them. Amazing. So, before we uh, talk about your relationship with Secretary Summers and then uh, the other people uh, and your experience in, in, in the Treasury, I want to just uh, ask you a little bit more about the OECD experience. You mean you drove OECD to work on structural reforms. Uh, you led OECD to help provide advice on economic reform f- to the Soviet Union, uh, oversaw a bunch of research. So uh, how, what, what was it like back then working for a big multilateral organization? like? Well, there was lots of opportunity to have impact if you could convince people uh, that you had good ideas. And uh, we were fairly effective in that. The IMF and the World Bank has a, have a lot of economists that go around giving advice, and they have cash at the end of that. If you don't take my advice, you don't get any money. Uh, we at the OECD didn't hand out money, and therefore we had to get our advice to stand on its own merits. Uh, and it was a challenge. Uh, but I think it was well worth taking the best practices across our member countries and try to uh, spread them around. And it was a very satisfying thing to do. Uh, and and then you joined the Treasury as an assistant secretary in, in May 1993. So you mentioned Secretary Summers. They just called you up? What's the Well, actually, like? it was a, an old Fed boss who called me up, and he said, I've been to see uh, – Larry Summers, uh, to talk about the assistant secretary job under him. It's the only direct report to the undersecretary. And uh, 
I don't think I want the job, and your name came up uh, in the conversation. Why don't you give Larry a call? So I called Larry, and he said, if you can be here Monday morning, I will uh, introduce you to Secretary Benson. Uh, and uh, Larry and I had become friends. He had been at the World Bank and came to lots of meetings at the OECD that I organized, and uh, and and so we, we knew each other quite well. And uh, Before you went to OECD, you already knew him, or...? or yeah, I, this shows how much what's really important in life and career is just chance. Um, I was the head of international research at the New York Fed, and Larry Summers was working as a senior staff economist in uh, the Reagan administration, believe it or not. Uh, and I invited him to come to New York. He was just a kid. Uh, come to New York <laughs> and to give a seminar at the New York Fed and to have lunch with the president of the bank. And so he came, and we hit it off really well, and so we stayed in touch, and whenever he came to Paris, we'd go out and have dinner. But it was also true that I was getting frustrated in New York and felt that I just wasn't communicating effectively with the president of the bank. Right. And Larry came and basically was saying the same things about macroeconomics that I was saying, much more articulately and with much more <laughs> evidence behind it, and not making any more of a dent. <laughs> and I go, well, maybe this isn't the, isn't the right place. And so that's when I started looking around and the opportunity to go to Paris came up. Um, B besides... Um Secretary Summers, there were also, you, you first worked for Secretary Benson, and then Rubin. Um, so, so I want to hear a little bit more. You were just, right before the interview, you were talking about uh, Secretary Benson. Um, and yeah, they were both great public servants and great bosses. Uh, Benson was a, uh, he'd been a longtime senator. He was a vice presidential candidate. He would been named uh, Secretary of the Treasury in the Clinton administration mostly young people around Clinton. And I think he picked me because I have white hair uh, <laughs> after he met me. And, and he felt, felt comfortable with me. Uh, and we worked very well together. Uh, and one of the things he really cared about was Mexico. Uh, because he grew up on a ranch on the banks of the Rio Grande River and was very close to Mexico and all his life had had close relationships with, with Mexico. And I used to describe my job as Larry Summers did what interested him, and that was Russia and the G7 exchange rates and so forth. And I made sure everything else got done and meant I dealt with Mexico and I dealt with China, which subsequently became two of the most important <laughs> things that I, I was, in fact, in the middle of. But so Benson and I uh, traveled to Mexico several times. He was very strongly interested in getting NAFTA passed, and so I became the Treasury's point man in the efforts uh, to get uh, NAFTA through Congress. I uh, created a, uh, an environmental development bank called the North American Development Bank uh, to broaden the, the support for NAFTA, and it's a, it's a little creation that uh, is still, I think, doing very good work uh, along the border. Uh, and uh, then Benson left the Treasury in, I think, the 1st of December, uh, 1994. And within 10 days, Mexico's economy started to fall apart, despite the fact that we had been advising them 
for months about things they needed to do. They needed to adjust the exchange rate and so forth, and they weren't doing it, and they finally got to the point where they couldn't do anything more. We didn't have a Secretary of the Treasury at the time. And, and, and Larry and I had to put our heads together and start putting our uh, plans together about what we should do with Mexico. Um, Secretary Rubin had been nominated. He hadn't been confirmed yet. So Larry and I would work on these problems in late December all day long, and then it was usually me <laughs> would call uh, Rubin, who was vaca- taking his last vacation before he, he came, to, <laughs> came to work, and tell him what was going on. And he sounded very, very dubious, uh, didn't really know me that well at all right. at that point, didn't know who he was dealing with. Um, but then by early January, we had recognized that Mexico needed financial support, that if it got financial support, it would had an economy that would recover and it would be able to repay that. And uh, Ruben had become persuaded of this. And we went straight from the swearing his swearing-in ceremony with the president in the uh, Oval Office to a meeting to talk to the president about uh, the Mexican strategy, and he immediately embraced it, and we went off uh, to try to rescue Mexico. At first with congressional support, and then when we couldn't generate that, we used the resources that were available within the Treasury and got more support from the, the IMF to uh, to put together a package that help to stabilize the Mexican economy. So that was uh, late 1994. The me- it, it started in December and yeah, and, and then rolled into 95. Well, was that the the most challenging experience you, you, in in the treasury? You, you'd say I think it was. Partly the stakes were huge, um, and it was politically terribly unpopular. My wife is a volunteer who used to answer the telephone in the White House when people would call in with comments, and she would come home and she'd say, 95 out of 100 people think you're doing the wrong thing. <laughs> and and there was a lot then as now, a lot of unhappiness about Mexican immigration. Right. And my commitment, my, my conviction was the best way to have opportunities for Mexicans at home would be to have a strong economy, and it would reduce that pressure quite a bit. Uh, and I would, but it wasn't people's instinct. They said, "Why should we be giving something to Mexico, sending all these people here?" Uh, and uh, and I was convinced that uh, that they had the economic management in the new under the new president, President Zedillo, uh, to be able, if they had some financial support, uh, to come through it very well. Uh, I designed a, a loan program that created some very strong incentives for them to repay us as soon as possible. The interest rates were not bargain interest rates. Uh, <laughs> and the amount of oversight and process and meetings and so forth that they had to live with was enough to strongly encourage them to get back the, the money and repay us, which they were able to do very quickly. So you were just saying how the people thought it was kind of unpopular to, to do this thing. Uh, I guess the greater question is, what's the best way to convey and explain economic and monetary policy to the public? Because people don't know what exactly you guys are doing. And it's really difficult. I mean, you do have to get out and talk about it. I wish more people had good economics courses as undergraduates as they were growing up so that they would pick it up more quickly. Um, but I think... Uh, 
you know, the Mexican program, it really was a matter of, are we just giving them money or is it, uh, are we providing them a loan that they're going to repay? And that is a judgment. And at one point, the, the tension was very high and I was wondering, you know, is this going to work or not? And, and it showed in my face. And Bob Rubin, who had been a trader before and was much calmer than I was about this, once called me into his office and he said, we are doing the right thing. It may not turn out right anyway. It's all a matter of the, the odds. Uh, and you have to be able to live with that. <laughs> and, and it is, and it is, it is uh, true that you have to be convinced you're doing the right thing. We had done careful analysis of the Mexican economy and its financial position, and we're, we're persuaded that uh, if, if they got the support, they'd use it well and, and, and repay us. But uh, other people who weren't as close to it didn't see it, and they weren't going to just take it on faith because I said so, right? And so that is a, a real challenge in trying to get uh, the policy across. And then behind it, and this had become much sharper, the, the elections in 1994, just before this happened, were uh, created a big swing against uh, President Clinton and the Democrats, and the the Republicans uh, took over the House, and they wanted to show their force so that they were, uh, even though they had initially said they, the leadership had said they'd support it, their rank and file just didn't want to do it. And so it became a, a, a quite a political battle uh, for reasons that probably had nothing to do with the, the economics. Uh, the uh, one supporter that we did have on the Republican side who remained very strong was uh, uh, the... Uh, the younger George Bush, who was then governor of Texas, and he knew what was at stake, and he stood by us and said, "Just we were doing the right thing." Went on to be president. It, it must be hard, though, right, for you, for you for you guys to convince the president, because every president has a limited amount of political capital, and they wanted to use it on. Um... I was amazed because I hadn't dealt a lot with Clinton. I'd been in a few meetings with him and so forth, at how quickly he absorbed this. Partly it was probably the quality of the presentation that, that uh, <laughs> Ruben and Summers made. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, after listening for about 15 minutes, he said, you know, this is going to be terribly unpopular. He knew that. He said, but it's the right thing to do. We've got to do it and get me the leadership of the House and Senate on the phone. Uh, as I said, and that night, uh, both the Republicans and Democrats on the Hill uh, said, yes, this was the right thing to do and they would support it. Um, but uh, he knew the political cost. I think he also knew that a Mexico that was sitting on our border in a state of economic collapse was going to create even more serious problems. And uh, the right course, eventually people would kind of would forget if, if it turned out well, and it did turn out well. And by Election Day in 1996, uh, Mexico was pretty strong, and uh, it had faded as an issue. So, do you sort of see that happening today? By by that I mean, if we have a crisis, would the two parties sort of get across the partisanship and come together and and have an agreement and recognize the situation? Do you think the current government administration? I, I really don't think so. As I say, it really didn't happen then. After the initial statement of support. It fell away, and it became a purely partisan matter, and we had to use the authority that we already had in the law to provide the support because Congress wouldn't uh, wouldn't pass legislation for it. And I think it's gotten much worse 
since. If you look at if you look at um, the uh, subprime crisis, right? Uh, you had a situation in which the um, crisis after Lehman Brothers went under was just manifestly obvious that we needed support. The Fed had just done everything it possibly could within its legal remits and so forth to provide support. It was going to have more. It was going to have to come from Congress. Congress. And they put forward the TARP legislation, and it was voted down in the House of Representatives the first time. People just didn't want to, to do this. The drop in the stock market after Congress did that, I think, got people's attention, and then they did come back. But it did that crisis was deeper than it needed to be because we were a little slow in providing that uh, that, that that support. Uh, and so that is a continuing big risk that you and the fa- the the role that one is talking about playing here in, in the case of Mexico with the country is is what's known as the lender of last resort. When you've got somebody who is basically economically sound and in the longer run can pay their debts, but nobody wants to lend them money today for whatever reason. There needs to be a lender of last resort. Somebody will come in when others are scared or won't and so forth and provide that, that credit. The U.S. Fed and Treasury? And so <laughs> the, the Fed was created, in fact, as a lender of last resort to the domestic economy in the right. U.S. And uh, they have kind of shared that role internationally over the years, depending on the situation. The Fed's got more money, but the, <laughs> the, the Treasury's got more uh, uh, maybe legal authority to act uh, within limits. But um, the Dodd-Frank Act curtailed the capacity of the Fed to act as a lender of last resort. Uh, there's a big debate. Maybe there's still enough there to be able to act pretty well, but it it is a, ra- a matter of concern that uh, they can't provide the, the kind of support that they did in uh, in 2008. Uh, and uh, it would probably be even harder to get something like TARP done again, uh, which was the legislation that gave $700 billion to the Treasury to lend in the financial system. So do you uh, not really agree with uh, certain parts of the Dodd-Frank Act? Or well, certainly the, the broad thrust of it was, was positive. It got banks to hold more capital. It got banks to... Uh, what in my view is even more important to uh, be more conservative about the liquidity management, that is the, the risk that all the money could start flowing out the door and they, they would need a lender of last resort. Uh, and uh, so but the broad thrust of it I think is, is, is positive. And there are always things that aren't right. Uh, I think the, the Volcker rule was done kind of wrong and if they modify that, they, that would probably be a plus. Uh, and the curtailment of the Fed's um, lending powers, I think, is the most uh, most most serious thing because it increases the the possibility of having a real crisis and not being able to do anything about it. Just to quickly go back to Mexico, uh, I think Mexico is one of the few countries, if not the only country, who where we see after the trade goes up, the, the economic growth and you know, income per capita have not really picked up, unlike many other developing countries that we're seeing in, in East Asia. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on well, the I, country. I haven't, 
I haven't looked at the numbers recently. I think incomes have risen, and Mexico has has done okay. It hasn't it hasn't provided the kind of uh, economic uh, growth that uh, the East Asian countries have, or Chile, which is the sure. outstanding case in the Western Western Hemisphere. Um, but uh, but it's done reasonably well, and it, Mexico has had and continues to have. Governance problems. I mean, it's uh, the the politics of Mexico have changed a lot, but they haven't necessarily improved <laughs> as they have they have changed. And I think, uh, you know, as I said, I thought very highly of Ernesto Zedillo, who was the president that we helped out. But the president only has one six year term, and when he was uh, gone, the the uh, country began to slide back into the old kind of crony capitalist ways. Uh, that are that are not so constructive for growth, um, and um, it really takes a, uh, a a country whose public understands and and, and embraces good business practices to uh, uh, to I think be successful in a in a sustained way, and uh, you keep hoping that. Uh, Mexico and, and others who've kind of been on the verge for, for quite a few years uh, will continue to move in that direction. But uh, I think Argentina, with a lot more resources, has done a lot worse <laughs> in terms of mismanagement over the last couple of decades. So you've, you've interacted with a lot of uh, foreign policymakers, right? You were the undersecretary for mm-hmm. international affairs. You, I think you also interacted with a lot of Chinese Policymakers, that that's something you mm-hmm. that you consider as a big part of your career. Yes, I first got involved when we were at the Treasury, and uh, Bob Rubin wanted, and I thought it was the right thing to do to start a standing bilateral relationship with the Finance Ministry and Central Bank of China, and we did that. Uh, as a result of that, I made my first trip to China in 1995, along with Alan Greenspan. Uh, and because of Greenspan's stature, we met all of the le- leadership uh, and a, a lot of other good, bright people who were creating this miracle of uh, economic transformation in China. And I continued to be engaged in that. And uh, we had an, another meeting the, the next year. Um, so then I became an investment banker, and my job was to develop business with governments around the world. And there were more countries than I could possibly deal with, and I made out a list of where were the, the best opportunities. And China was number one on my list. Uh, and so I spent a lot of time uh, looking to pursue business in China, and the Chinese were anxious to see me because they knew about what I had done and what my record was and what I understood and so forth. And and so uh, I would give them sort of an economic perspective and uh, say, and if you have a bond to issue, why don't you use us to issue the bond? Uh, and that was a fairly, fairly successful uh, model. I also did a lot in, uh, in Korea and in the ASEAN countries in those days, but not only there. I made a number of trips to Egypt, which never quite came to fruition in terms of opportunity, and uh, and Turkey, where we did do a lot of business, and, and other parts of the world as well. So, so your experience uh, being an investment banker. So, you left Treasury. You went on to become the vice chairman of International Division. 
uh, for the investment bank Solomon Brothers yeah. first. And, and, and so, so I wanted to hear your thoughts on uh, what exactly motivated you to make the transition and also the work you did. And Well, the simple answer that I give to why I left after Clinton's first term is after 25 years in the public sector, I was exhausted and broke. <laughs> and Bob Rubin said, investment banking isn't rocket science. You can do that. Uh, and uh, so I, I thought I would, would try it. And I had relationships with senior people in governments all over the world. Uh, I think I understood what they needed in terms of uh, debt issuance and privatization support and so forth. And I thought it's something I could make a contribution to. And I, and I really felt that the transition worked well and I was able to uh, to uh, succeed at that. And in fact, to capture a bit of it, uh, one of the – hadn't been there very long when Korea – went into financial crisis, and because of some friends of mine in the academic world who were connected in Korea, the Koreans asked me to come and advise them on how to deal with the crisis, and I, I did that. And then we went on to talk to people in Thailand and Indonesia and other countries as well. And one of the people who supported me on this was a young man uh, who was uh, from an overseas Chinese family, grew up in California, had gone to Georgetown and had planned to be a foreign service officer. And he said, you know, I never got this. Somehow I got lured away into getting hired by an investment bank. And I was embarrassed to go back to my college reunion because all I've been doing is going out and doing bond issues. <laughs> and my, my, my friends have been doing all these important foreign policy things. And he said, you know, I got there and I realized that my friends had spent years stamping visas and doing all these things. And I actually had worked to save some countries. And it really was important work, <laughs> and it was good. And hes I've just been in touch with him recently. He's still there doing the same thing in our Hong Kong offices of uh, Citigroup. Got you. So so uh, the, being advisor to the Korean government during its financial crisis of 1997, um, so how, how, how was what was going on back there then? Well... This was the, maybe the purest case, uh, and I should maybe back up a little bit. And I said I was confident that we were doing the right thing when we saved Mexico, uh, and I was sure that the right thing to uh, was to reestablish uh, Korea's uh, position in the bond market, and that we could do that. Um, that's because they were suffering from liquidity problems. Money was running out. Some of the money was running out of Korea because Japanese banks were having distress at home and they wanted to bring the money home. Uh, and it was also true that when the other Asian economies got hit, the Korean banks, who had been borrowing very short-term money and lending long-term, started having difficulty rolling over the short-term money. So they were getting into a liquidity squeeze. If you have a liquidity squeeze, a lender of last resort can save the day. If you've got a country that just built up too much debt and just can't service it, and it's too big a burden, then you have to find another solution. You have to find, figure out who's going to get, take the hit for the right, write downs of this debt. Uh, something that still hasn't happened, and it's why Greece has kind of been in the sick ward for a, for a decade. Uh, and so there are the differences between whether this is something where a little financial support will get you back to normal, or whether it's something just much 
bigger overhang of debt that you can't deal with that way. And Korea was the most obvious case. It's a strong, powerful economy that had tremendous growth. The government had zero debt outstanding. The debt was in the hands of the banks. Uh, and uh, the problem was they had been borrowing very short term because it was a little cheaper. And then suddenly they couldn't do it anymore. And so you needed to to provide the, the, the support for them in the short run. And then Korea came back very, very strongly. Um, how what, What's the approach or mindset you usually use when approaching countries in distressed financial crises, uh, distressed governments? Well, I mean, the first question I ask is, is this a liquidity problem or is it a solvency problem? Is it really, you know, we're going to have to take some losses here? Uh, <laughs> and, uh, I think you, ha- you have to make that judgment. And then uh, if it's a liquidity problem, you figure out a path. Uh, sometimes it's temporary official liquidity. In the case of Korea, it was not even a matter of getting uh, official money. They did have an IMF program, but I don't think that was terribly important in the end of the day. Uh, they had some G7 support that wasn't that good, but they had to do two things. One, they had to get the banks who were lending money to the Korean banks to keep that in place and not pull the plug on it. And it was very much in the bank's interest to do so, because otherwise they're going to bankrupt banks and we're getting anything back. If they were willing to hang in there for a while, uh, they get all their money back. And so we got a negotiation started on a standstill of these bank loans. And once that was in place, the Koreans did pay a higher interest rate for that, and they were furious about it. But I said, look, this is, <laughs> this is going to be cheap in the long run. We were able to go to the bond market, and they immediately saw if Korea has uh, $3 billion in the bank through a bond issue, because other people put their money there when I did, this is going to be uh, an easy situation, and we'll, we'll make good money as uh, uh, Korea recovers and those bond spreads narrow. And so we did have a blockbuster bond issue. In fact, the Koreans in the end didn't take all the money that was put on the table by the investors um, because they saw, you know, if the other guy's there, then I can be there and we all go in together. And with a bond issue, you know, either everybody's going to buy it or they're not going to buy it. And it was a very successful operation. Interesting. So I, I guess there's this one opinion that sort of claims the U.S. Treasury and use the IMF, IMF and the financial crisis to open up East Asian markets for American financial and commercial interests. And the, the, how, I don't think that's true. It is true that when I was at the Treasury, one of my major activities was to try to get the Asian economies to open up their markets for financial services. And we were negotiating the Uruguay round, and we wanted that kind of agreement to be a part of it. And this was in 1994. Uh, And I took my staff out to Asia for week-long trips and visited five countries in six days and uh, tried to get agreement and had very little success. And at the end of the day, at the last minute in the Uruguay round, we decided not to... uh, uh, make that agreement. Uh, and then we had a follow-up round and we couldn't make an agreement again. I can't remember whether it was before the Asian crisis or after, but in fact, it may have been after, Tim Geithner, when he was the undersecretary during the Clinton administration, 
agreed in the WTO to essentially the same deal that, given where Congress was, I'd had to say no to. So I think what we settled for was what the Asians had been willing to do for four or five years. And I don't think the leverage of the financial crisis, whether this came before or after, was significant to that. And I don't think the U.S. got much <laughs> out of it. Uh, the U.S. did use the IMF because we needed the IMF resources. We did think IMF uh, uh, policy advice uh, was was pretty strong. Stan Fisher was the deputy managing director of the IMF, uh, and he was somebody we had a lot of confidence in. Um, and there is a big debate about whether the IMF put too much emphasis on cutting budget deficits. And they probably did, but I don't think that was significant really in how the economies actually evolved uh, in the end of the day. Uh, and the important thing is, and the people in the countries who succeeded recognized you had to create financial conditions that got people willing to overcome their risk and put money back into the country. And sometimes that meant sky-high interest rates. It did in Korea for a while. It did in Indonesia. But the most articulate statement of what Indonesia needed to do with the high interest rates was made to me by the woman who was the central bank deputy governor at the time. Uh, and, and, and she said, you know, you got you to gotta get people to come back in. Once they come back in and they realize it's good, then the interest rates will come back down. And they did. Uh, and uh, so that's something that the IMF is criticized for, but I don't think there was any alternative. And it was kind of short-term in, in its costs, and, uh, and uh, the countries that followed it got through it pretty quickly. Since we're already on the topic of uh, liquidity issues, solvency issues, financial crisis, uh, I'm going to ask you this. Do you have any prediction regarding the next, or, uh, next one? Are you seeing any country having the... Um, some sort of hints for financial distress? Uh, oh, there are a number of them. I'm not kind of keeping the, the list that closely these days, and it's probably not fair to name names without being more informed. But there are risks, including in the U.S. Yeah, uh, what about the U.S.? People are talking about uh, the yield curve inversion all the time, and I was asking you this, and you said uh, you, you wouldn't be so... Well, I take the yield curve fairly seriously, partly because <laughs> when it when it inverted, I think it was at the beginning of 2007, I dismissed it. I thought it wasn't anything. And boy, we were in a recession by the end of the year. <laughs> uh, I think there are a couple of different reasons why the yield curve matters. One is just it's, it's a reflection of the expectations of people in the market. It says people in the market think interest rates are going to be lower in the future than they are now. Well, why would you think interest rates are lower? Because the economy was weaker and the Fed would be lowering interest rates. Uh, so in a way, uh, the yield curve just reflects people's the market's expectations. And that's something to take seriously. It doesn't mean it's, it's inevitably correct. Um, and, but, but often, too, the yield curve gets inverted because the Fed is really squeezing. It's got an inflationary problem. It's responding. It's raising interest rates, and it raises the short-term interest rates very high. That's not happening now. We've got a Fed that's on hold. So uh, w one of the reasons that you would think the yield curve might lead to uh, a decline is not operating. But the other one is. Got you. Um, so how do you 
do you still get get involved in terms of protecting world economic outlook? What's your what's your take on the current situation we have right now? Well, I I follow it. Um, I the center of it is is the U.S. Uh, and I have like a lot of other economists have been wrong about the U.S. I didn't think we could run a unemployment rate well below 4% without seeing accelerating inflation, and, and we are. Uh, so uh, it, it makes my picture of the, of the U.S. Uh, a little bit brighter. A little, well, I'm just uncertain. But it is true that uh, the U.S. has been growing around 2% uh, for five or six years now. It had a burst that got up above that into the high twos last year because of the sugar high from all the fiscal stimulus from the tax cuts. Um, but that's gone now. And so we're back down to this quarter probably a little below 2% and we'll probably average 2% or a bit above this year. Uh, in other parts, Europe is in chronic difficulty. I think they, they haven't dealt as well with... Uh, Problems in their in their banks as as we have, uh, so they've still got that hope hanging over their head. You've got countries like Greece and Italy uh, with very high debt burdens that gives them almost no room to to maneuver. Spain, Portugal, Spain and Portugal, in fact, have turned the corner a bit. They're not quite. That's why not as much. And, and, and Ireland has even more turned the corner. We used to have the, the five countries, and now it's. it's, it's <laughs> It's, it's more too. I mean, there's political uncertainty in, in those countries too, and they could slip backwards. Um, but uh, uh, Italy's the one that the situation continues to get worse, not better. It's a country with tremendous human capital and capability. It's a shame to see it do so so poorly. I mean, you've, you've led a very long, successful career, and you've been in this for so long, analyzing, I guess, not just the economy, but political economy, the dynamics mm-hmm. between people, uh, goods, money, credit, everything. Why do you, it just seems that the world is so chaotic currently, right now. What, what do, do you think we're in a particularly chaotic period right now, or uh, you think it's always been? Well, one part of this, and I would go back and I'd say this started with the 2008 crisis, the world economy in the early part of this millennium was really good. The U.S. <laughs> economy was strong. Europe was getting along. China had emerged as a global powerhouse. Uh, poverty in the world was at an all-time low. So in a way, the anxiety is partly a, a maybe slipping back from that peak <laughs> that we had. Uh, we certainly had problems then we did earlier what was going to happen the transition of the Soviet Union and and the countries around it and we have had uh, I spent first decade of my career worrying about a, a collapse of the euro dollar market there have always been those tensions the thing that is different now is the political environment the public in so many countries seems to have no confidence in the people who've spent their life training themselves and preparing themselves to deal with these kinds of problems. Um, And it's true in this country. It's true in Britain with Brexit. It's true uh, an awful lot of places. And I first saw this emerge in um, Argentina 
20 years ago. Argentina is a country that had a, an up and down, kind of not terribly good uh, track record for 100 years. If you go back to 1900, the, well, the economy of Argentina was about as strong as the U.S., and they were attracting strong flows of immigrants from Southern Europe and Eastern Europe like we were. In fact, my wife, whose family's from Italy, uh, found that of people from her family, the Terenzios, were, t- were told half of them went to Buenos Aires and half of them went to Stanford, Connecticut. Uh, and you go and look in a Buenos Aires phone book, which we did once, and you find out it's true. Uh, so the country had all the same re- and tremendous resources, good land, and, and, and everything else. And political mismanagement uh, has had just done very badly. And then in the late 80s and 1990s, they brought in a technocratic government. They had a finance minister with a Ph.D. from MIT, who I think had been Larry Summers office mate at one point. Uh, <laughs> and, and they put in part a, uh, an economic program that looked very solid. But then it started to get cracks. And they didn't have the political capacity or the political will to fix them. And the country went on with a fixed exchange rate uh, and a, uh, a budget that they were spending more and more money and not balancing, and the debt was getting higher. And for a while, the banks were more than happy to sell it, and so they could borrow at pretty good interest rates. But it got to the point that uh, along about 2000, 2001, it all blew up. And you could see the Argentinian public say, to hell with people with MIT PhDs. (laughs) And they turned to people with crazy kind of off-the-wall ideas for economic management, and that's how they've been managed until recently. And it's just this turned out very badly. I think you do see, you know, a lot of the same after the, after the financial crisis in the U.S., the same view that, uh, oh, the people who were supposed to be able to run things didn't. Uh, let's listen to somebody else. And we're just going to have to very patiently <laughs> get through this period, hope the damage isn't too great, and hope we can rebuild a, uh, a, an economic and political system that's built on sound but why did Please. why did those people screw up though? Why do you think is there some systematic systemic failure of? Yeah, there is. In the case of U.S. is a, is different. Um, the case of Argentina it was the president was kind of using the technocrats, um, but he had his own agenda, and in the end, he was the one who pulled the strings, and so they couldn't get done what they needed to get done. And then when it got late in the game, they uh, were following an economic strategy of keep hope alive. Uh, and rather than face up to the fact there's some real fundamental painful things, they just kept kicking the ball down the road and hoping that something would come up, and, and it got worse and worse. The U.S. financial crisis is, is very different, I think. Um, I think a lot of people just made terrible judgments. Uh, And they were all, and I was part of it too, wrapped up in an economy that had done well for a long time and just could not see these kinds of problems. We all knew there was too much debt in housing, but we thought it would be containable. In fact, the scale of the losses in the U.S. housing market that lay behind the subprime crisis, less than 
the losses in the stock market in, two, in the 2000 stock market crash. But it got magnified in 2007, 2008 because you had financial institutions Greedy. Like, the, like the Korean banks I've been talking about before who would buy these long-term mortgages and finance them with 30-day commercial paper. Uh, same thing with uh, the, the European banks, right? And they the European banks did the same thing. They buy, buy this Asset-backed commercial papers. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. yeah. And so it was, a, uh, uh, it was an inattention to liquidity, which I is uh, uh, at the core. And that was the core two of what the Mexicans got wrong. Uh, and so I, I'm, I just keep saying that, you know, worrying about making sure that uh, people aren't subject to runs, you know, come take your money out. Or it can also take the form of everybody is counting on if they need money being able to sell some assets. Uh, well, if they're thinking about selling the same assets, when trouble comes, those prices just drop like a rock and you can't get anything for them. And so dealing with those problems is something that's very important. And I think we've made some progress, but I think I, over time those lessons are going to be forgotten. Uh, do you have any prediction? Um, I wouldn't say the, the, use the word uh, pr- prediction, but given the challenges we've seen, uh, do you have any future vision for where the society is, our society is sort of headed? I can't tell. It's becoming more divided, you know, but there are a clear majority of people in this country who do believe in one country and everybody should have the same rights under the law and we're all in it together uh, and we owe some support to one another. And hopefully those voices will be organized enough and loud enough to get the policy back on a track that uh, in which that's at the at the center uh, there are always going to be people who want to go off and do something different and it's just a question of having having more people and being better organized so would you say that it kind of is always a push and pull b- b- between w- what did you say that or the people who knew what was going on and also people who didn't and then yeah. the public always sort of lean either one way or the other as crises occur, as cycles go through? Well, there are two issues here. One is the, is the technocratic, do you know what you're doing or not? And that's either a conservative or a liberal would rather get things right than wrong. Right. Uh, but there is also the pull between people who just, just think of myself and if I can get my taxes cut, then that's all I care about. And the people who feel that they're a part of a community of, of um, many people with different uh, backgrounds and uh, the that we're all in it together, and and that that's the second tension. Um, so, what would you say is the most urgent political and economic challenge we have t- today? Would you do? You, are you concerned about the budget deficit? At I all? am you... concerned about the budget deficit. We're not going to have a crisis tomorrow, and not even next year, or so forth. But a country that's approaching a hundred percent of GDP in government debt is, I think, that used to be my magic uh, number when it gets hard to to. Uh, uh, to get it back down again, um, with low interest rates, you probably partly low interest rates making pe- people feel more relaxed about it. Uh, but interest rates—they're not going to go sky high anytime soon. But they kind of come up at some point. The economy keeps growing, and we will start to see some inflationary pressures. And the cost of paying for that debt is going to mount as the interest rates mount. And here we are at a time of record low unemployment. 
a strong economy, even if the distribution of the benefits of that strength aren't, isn't very even, but still, it's a strong economy. People are working, and we're running up big more debt. What's going to happen when things slow down? The debt's going to explode. You'd like to have the capacity to do what Obama did in 2009 and have a big stimulus there. And the capacity may not be there. There, there may not be the people there to buy it. The last time around, the, the Chinese government bought the debt. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, they, have, they have their own debt problems in China today. Uh, so, uh, so, so that not, might not be there. And I do think it, it is a matter of, uh, of dealing with the debt. And in, within that is this tension is, are we going to cut back what the government spends money on when we probably have to spend more money on some things, on education, on health care, and so forth? Uh, then we have to find other things to spend less on or raise taxes. And I do think uh, U.S. is undertaxed, and we just have to accept the fact that we're going to pay more taxes. Interesting. Um Many of your colleagues back back then, just to, before we wrap things up, I mean, you, your colleagues were all sort of household names, right? We were just talking about Lawrence Summers, who became mm-hmm. the Treasury Secretary, Harvard President, uh, and then there was also Michael Froman. I was I interviewed him a couple of months ago when we mm-hmm. the day we met. Um, he later became also worked in City and became became President Obama's trade representative. Um, and you said Tim Geithner, all those people. So. Was there something so unique about you and your colleagues back then in the Clinton administration that ended up uh, all doing just amazing things later? Or as I think, I don't know whether <laughs> it. This was probably Larry Summers' magnetism. I mean, we all got pulled apart. <laughs> well, I, not just Larry. I'm the one who recruited Mike Froman right. to come from the NSC to come to the Treasury. But we did have a collection of I thought immensely good. It was fun to work there. We'd have tremendous arguments, go, go to midnight about should we do it this way or should we do it that way. But it really was was was, was exciting, and I think we did some good things. Uh, we managed uh, some, some financial crises. We uh, did uh, move a bit towards a more liberal uh, global financial system, uh, and uh, uh, it, was a, it was a good uh, – it was great to be with that kind of – Team. Proud, awesome, and, and I, I mean, uh, you were just talking about moving towards a more liberal global uh, financial system. Do you, do you sort of still have that vision of globalization? That I think yes. You you can't be an extremist about it, and you can't just us uh, dismantle all the obstacles. You have to build strong, resilient domestic financial structures that can stand up in global markets. Uh, and for example, when we talk about um, opening up the Chinese economy be very dangerous uh, because the Chinese financial system just couldn't take the pressure of the flows in and out that that, that, that would gener- generate. You have to move very cautiously, step by step. Uh, and it's not just that free flow of capital always gets it right and goes in the right direction. And I do think we need a, a global management system of countries to kind of manage exchange rates and capital flows a little more effectively than we have in the past. But, uh, you know, when you just put up walls, you distort the allocation of resources. You create opportunities for people to cheat and make money, and the money, all the money goes to the cheaters. Uh, and, uh, and so you don't want that to happen. I used to see the, the places, how people would get around the capital controls in, in, uh, in Korea by uh, selling uh, futures in golf course 
memberships, which were not subject to the capital controls because nobody had thought of them and to put them in there. Uh, and uh, so I do think uh, a system where you have well-managed banking systems in the countries and where the banking regulators are working closely together, um, but it becomes more and more one global financial system is is a positive development. Uh, do you what would you say would be the biggest failure you've had in your life? Biggest regret? Biggest failure? Because everybody must think you're yeah. very very successful. So well, I have been, and I, I saw that question you asked me, and I asked my wife, and she <laughs> says I can't think of. I've mean, had lots of lots of little things, but I and and it's not. You know, I did write for one of my. Princeton reunions, a, a note on what I had done. Uh, and I said, well, my life so far has been working on a lot of things that didn't turn out very well. <laughs> I went to Vietnam, and that was a war that we shouldn't have been in in the first place, and we had to get out of and lost. Uh, I went to work at the Fed and became a part of the group that was working on the Committee of 20 to reform the international financial system uh, after the collapse of uh, the fixed exchange rate system. And that failed and was uh, just uh, stopped uh, after uh, the oil, the first oil shock. Uh, and so I've done, I've worked on a lot of things that didn't turn out well, but I felt and it's a bit like, uh, I guess, going back to, to, to Camus. You just, you do your job and you do, you, and I'm proud of what I've done in all, even in, those, in, in all those situations as well. Of course. Awesome. I guess what advice would you give to young people today, especially who want to prepare themselves for a potential career, either in the government or become an economist, or would you advise them to go to the, the, the government, the Fed, the international organization like the OECD? Uh, I think you have to look for where there are opportunities and take something that looks interesting to you, because if you have a job that's not interesting, it's, it's, you're not going to do it well. Uh, and don't assume you're going to be doing it for the rest of your life and always have your eyes open for something else to, to move to. And that's what I've, I've done. Uh, you know, when I got ready to leave the Fed in Washington after nine years, uh, I'd taken two leave of absence during those nine years, but <laughs> I'd been there that long. My boss, trying to talk me out of it, he says, you know, you really have to ask yourself this next job you take are you going to be happy if you do it for the rest of your life? And I said, oh, my God, I'd be unhappy if I thought I was going to do any job for the rest That's of my right. life. And so I think you do have to be prepared to move around. Uh, in, the, in the U.S. especially, we do not have career paths. We do not have employers who look out for our careers. You have to do it yourself. It's not like the, the Japanese civil service where everybody has their career plan for them. Uh, and it means, you know, I've had spent uh, a good bit of my life looking at becoming a Wall Street economist, and I never did. I went to Wall Street then in a banking capacity rather than as an economist. Uh, and so, you know, I wouldn't have predicted anything I did, but it was all really rewarding and exciting. So uh, you, you were mentioning how by the time you took uh, the job at Solomon Brothers, you were um, in public s service for so long, and you, you were burnt out and broke. And how do you manage to stay in places like OECD with the public service for so long that you you maintain that, I guess, calmness in terms of money, right? You could have had multiple opportunities to go to 
big, you know, buck yeah. paying jobs, but you never. Uh... Well, the world has changed a lot, and it continues to change. And the chasing those big checks uh, gets strong. But you know, even when I became a banker, I you know I wasn't one of the top paid guys. I was, and uh, I I made good money and enough to live very comfortably for the rest of my life. But it's not right. You have to have enough, right? And uh, the problem is it's about gotten to the point where a uh, civil service job at the Treasury just doesn't pay you enough to live a decent life. But in, when I was coming through the system, it didn't pay well. My friends in banking were making more. But, but it I, wasn't but I, significantly. But, but, I sent, but I sent two daughters to Princeton with help financial aid. Uh, and as a result, as I said, I was, I was broke, but I, <laughs> but, I wasn't, but I wasn't in debt. Right, uh, and so I could get by on that, and uh, so so it's, you you just got to find that limit of what's enough, that's and right. then within that boundary, you yeah. find the most meaning. Yeah. You start that, to. That's right. That that's awesome advice. And uh, so the name of our podcast is Policy Punchline. So I have to ask you at the end of our show, uh, what's the punchline here? Maybe for your career, for economic development, for policy making. Um, I think it is. When you look at my career, you look at the economic problems I've dealt with, it's things that you didn't expect are happening all the time. And you have to be prepared intellectually and in terms of experience to know how to respond when something happens that you hadn't seen coming. And that goes back to President Goheen's uh, words yes. that you just have to make the best of your judgment at a certain moment. That's right. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mr. Schaefer. This is a great conversation. Very good. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. Uh, please visit us on policypunchline.com. Follow us and rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, uh, Google Play, and Stitcher. And follow us on Twitter at Policy Punchline. Thank you so much for listening today. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.